Are you with me? All right, good. Here we go. So in the fourth century, uh, near the Nile Nile River Valley, that's what I'm trying to say, in Egypt, there's a large African man who was known as Moses the Black, and he led a group of bandits that were known for terrorizing the region with violence. And uh, once, after committing a crime, Moses the Black found refuge in this colony of monks. It wasn't a monastery like a one single house. It was this collection of single rooms or cells that the monks would build out of rock or create in caves. And he hid out with them for a couple of days. And while he was hiding from the local authorities, he was observing the monks. And what he observed was fascinating to him. He observed a significant degree of contentment and peace, and it was attractive. So later, he returned to the monastery, he returned to the community of monks, this time to renounce his old life and to join them as a monk, and he became a monk himself. But being a monk wasn't easy for Moses, he struggled with how slowly his life was changing, he wanted to be holy, but the journey towards holiness was slow, it was arduous, it was challenging, he didn't see a lot of progress, so he'd get discouraged quickly, more than once, he concluded that he, was, he just wasn't able to follow God as a monk, and so he resolved to quit, but then an older monk would take him under his wing, encourage him to trust God, to be graceful to himself, to continue in the journey, and eventually Moses becomes the leader of this monastic community in this place called Skeet. And then when Moses was 75 years old, another group of bandits attacked the monastery. And some of the monks there wanted to take up arms, but Moses encouraged them instead to flee and said that he and a few others would stay and attempts to welcome the bandits with the same kind of grace that he himself was welcomed with so many years before that led to his changed life. Well, he and those who stayed with him were martyred. But he's still remembered today as a man whose life was truly changed. He was a violent man who became a holy man. And probably the most common association with this man, Moses the Black, he's best known for this word of instruction that he gave to a young monk, and it's recorded in this series of books that's called The Desert Fathers. A young monk comes to Moses, who at that time is now the abbot or the father, and asks him for his counsel, and abbot Moses' response is this. He says, go sit in your cell, and your cell will teach you everything. Go sit in your cell, and your cell will teach you everything. We're in this series this fall on the wisdom of stability, and what I want to talk about today is stability and place, just very specifically, stability and a geographical location. This is, in one sense, the most plain, the most basic, the most obvious application of this value of stability. It's physical place. We're talking about your cell your room, your house, your actual neighborhood, the city in which you live, whether it be Lincoln or Roseville or Newcastle or wherever it is on the map where your life takes place, where your life occupies actual space. We've talked about the stability. We've talked about stability in God, the nature of God, how he is unchanging. We've talked about stability in the interior life, things like peace and purpose. We've talked about stability in relationships, and today uh, I want to talk about the wisdom of stability and specific location. The sermon today is titled, Here, and I hope to simply invite us to consider being here. 
to consider how being here is shaping us, how being in a specific place is shaping us and challenging us and, and inviting us to grow. In other words, there are a lot of really important factors in your life today, and one of them is place, where you're from or where you live. That space in your life, where you are, that simple concept that we refer to as here with all of its nuanced complexities and all of its detailed specificities, all of the little annoyances that part, are part of that place uh, where life happens for you. So here's a bit of an outline. I want to tell you a story about Charlottesville, and then I want to go to this parable of Jesus, the parable of the soils. Then I want to tell you a story about Memphis, and then uh, a final quote to wrap it up, okay? That's where we're headed. So Charlottesville. Earlier this year, I traveled to Charlottesville, Virginia to spend a couple days with a really good friend of mine. I met him in college. We were in each other's weddings. Uh, we've shared a lot of life over the last two and a half decades, a lot of joys, a few sorrows. And uh, his name is Greg. And um, over, sometime over the last decade, without either one of us knowing it about the other, each of us started reading the rule of St. Benedict, which is this old, small rule of life written in the 6th century uh, about a life of devotion to God and a vision for community, how the church could be a community together. So he's reading it, I'm reading it, neither one of us know we're reading it. One time I'm on a video phone call with him and I see this familiar picture on the wall behind him on the office, on the office wall and I said, is that, is that St. Benedict? And he's like, yeah, that's St. That's Benedict. How do you know who that is? And so we start talking. Not only has he, has he been reading Benedict, but he and a group of other pastors and leaders in the church which he led had adapted the rule of St. Benedict, which is written for monks. They'd adapted it for a non-monastic modern community like ours, a church in Charlottesville, Virginia. And he was living this sort of adapted rule of life uh, based on the rule of St. Benedict. So as some of you know, about a year ago, I got this study grant from an organization in Kentucky to study the vow of stability in Italy and in several places around the country. And so as part of this research project, I flew to Charlottesville, Virginia to hang out with Greg and to learn from Greg and his wife and his community about stability. I went to see Greg where he lived, where he built a house, where he and his wife were raising their four kids, where he for a long time has pastored this big Presbyterian church, and where he and his family were just deeply embedded in the fabric of their community and had been for 18 years. And the first thing that Greg says to me when he meets me at the curb when I get off of the airplane is, I just want to warn you, things are a bit tense at home. And I said, well, what's going on? Are the kids okay? And he said, we just told them we're moving. Yeah, so I travel. <laughs> the irony is kind of thick, don't you agree? I travel to the other side of the country to hang out with somebody to learn about what it's like to make a long-term investment in one place, and I spend the whole weekend helping him and his family pack boxes, right? I, I go there because I want to I soak in this, this, this value of stability in one place, and we spend most of our time talking about and preparing for him to move to another place, I want to tell you more about that story, but first let's look at this teaching from Jesus in Matthew chapter 13. It's also written in Mark 4 and Luke 8. We'll look at Matthew's account of a parable that Jesus um, gives. A parable, in case you're not familiar, it's just a short, pithy story designed as a teaching tool to make you think. 
And it often has a twist at the end that makes you go, huh, it's not what I thought he was going to say. And it's one of Jesus' favorite teaching methods. He's often teaching in parables. It requires you to lean in. It's not easy access. It makes you, it makes you ask hard questions. What is he talking about here? So let's lean into this. This is what it says. Matthew chapter 13. I'll start with verse 3. Matthew writes, Then he, referring to Jesus, told them many things in parables, saying, A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed... He, um, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Verse 5, some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. And still other seed fell on good soil where it produced a crop 160 or 30 times what was sown. And then Jesus says, whoever has ears, let him hear. So Jesus is talking about seeds and he's talking about dirt because it's a parable. So it's not really about soil, is it? It's, it's about souls. It's really what he's talking about. He's talking about plants, but it's not really about plants. It's about people. Um, and he wants his listeners not just to listen to him. He wants his listeners to hear him, lean in, get the deeper meaning here. And so let's try to do that together in the next few minutes. The constant in the story is the seed. It's the same seed getting sown or distributed indiscriminately, apparently, everywhere. The same seed. Seed is the constant. The variable is the soil. In other words, it's the variety of the soil that makes the difference in the outcome. Four different kinds of soil are listed. There's the path. Barely qualifies as soil, right? The seed just gets snatched up. There's seeds that land in rocky places. Quick growth, but it doesn't last because the plant can't establish any roots there. Third kind of soil is among thorns. There is initial growth that happens there, but it's choked out. It can't develop. It doesn't mature no fruit comes from those seeds. And then the fourth seed or the fourth place is the good soil where a good crop is produced. Seeds in this good soil, in other words, they make a lasting effect. They make a lasting impact. Good comes from the seed and not just like a little bit, but a remarkable amount. 30 times, 60 times, 100 times what was planted. There's remarkable return on investment, in other words, on this seed. In the good soil. Now, this parable is recorded, um, in, as I said, in all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and what's unusual in addition to that about this story is that Jesus actually provides his own interpretation of this story. Rarely does this happen. Almost always Jesus gives a parable and walks away and we're left to go, what was that? I hardly even understand what you're talking about. And this time they actually, the disciples go to Jesus and say, you got to explain that one. Because we're not making the connection. And so, great, uh, gratefully, we have Jesus' own interpretation of, of this parable. And what he explains is that the seed represents something very specific, the word of God. And, and the four kinds of soil represent four kinds of people, or we might say people in four kinds of places, People in four kinds of places or situations or scenarios. 
Here in Matthew 13, verse 18, is the interpretation. Jesus says, listen then to what the parable of the sower means. When anyone hears the message of the kingdom, he's referring to the kingdom of God, the the state in which the rule of God reigns or the goodness of God rules, anyone who hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in their heart. This is the seed sown along the path. Verse 20. The seed falling on rocky ground refers to someone who hears the word and at once receives it with joy, but since they have no root, they last only a short time. When the trouble of persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. But the seed falling among the thorns refers to someone who hears the word, but the worries of this life, this is for us, The worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, making it unfruitful. But finally, the seed falling on good soil refers to someone who hears the word and understands it. Don't think just intellectually, think holistically, like knows it, gets it, uh, encompasses it, uh, takes it in, internalizes it. This is the one who produces a crop yielding 160 or 30 times what was sown. So this is the word of the Lord. What Jesus says here is that you got seeds on path, they get snatched up. Who is that? Those are people who don't understand the word. You got seeds in rocky places, there's quick growth, it doesn't last because the plant can't establish any roots. Who is that? Those are people who don't persevere. They don't persevere. Then third, there's seeds among thorns. Initial growth happens, but it's choked out. It doesn't develop. It doesn't mature. Who is that? Those are people who don't believe that the kingdom of God is the most important kingdom because a whole lot of other value systems and types of kingdoms are overwhelming the kingdom of God. The worries of the world are specifically mentioned, and don't miss this, the deceitfulness of wealth becomes a competing value system. The plant's still there. It's still alive, but it's fruitless. It doesn't produce anything that matters. It never matures. It never accomplishes its purpose. And then finally, you got seeds in good soil. These are the ones that produce a crop. Who is that? Jesus says there are people who hear, who understand, and who accept the truth. So the question at stake in this parable has to do with the receptivity of people. It has to do with the receptivity of people to the word of God, to the truth of God. How open are we? How how honestly uh, are we considering the teachings of Jesus? The word or the seed is given to all. The question is whether or not the place the seed lands will be good soil. What makes it good soil? How is the good soil different from the other three soils which are not good? The answer to that question is that the good soil is the soil in which the seed can take root. The good soil is the place in which maturity can be nurtured and supported. The seed can take root. The stability of the place, the good soil, stands in sharp contrast to the quick, shallow, and crowded nature of the other soils. Or to drop the parable language, just to try to be as clear as I can, the stability of one person's life stands in sharp contrast to the quick, shallow, crowded nature 
of other people's lives, equally loved by God, but not equally receptive to the love and the truth of God. It's stability in a person's life which leads to the production of fruit. To personalize it in the form of a question, is your life and is my life fast-paced, shallow, and crowded? Or is your life and is my life stable? One of the factors affecting uh, the ability of the soul to hear and receive and understand the word of God is stability. It's the receptivity of the soul that is emphasized and, uh, by Jesus. And it is the receptivity, the stability that enables the soil to receive the, the seed that, se- that Jesus seems to emphasize here. Now, stability isn't the only thing going on in this parable, but it's a really important thing that's going on in this parable. Why is stability in place so important? There's probably a thousand reasons. Let me just point out three really quickly. Here's the first. Here is a fundamental human need. The concept of here. We need a place. The Benedictine rule of of stability or value of stability, it's not some sort of esoteric, philosophical point of idealism. It's super practical. It's super realistic. uh, One author puts it like this. Everyone needs to feel at home. Everyone needs to feel earthed. For it is impossible to say, who am I, without first asking, where am I, where have I come from, and where am I going? These are the things that inform the identity question. She says, without roots, we can neither discover where we belong. Without roots, we, can not, we cannot grow. She says, without stability, we cannot know our true selves, for we are pulled apart in so many, by so many conflicting demands, so many things deserving of our attention, it seems as though the center cannot hold. She says, we're confused and we're superficial. A writer named Esther DeWall in her book, Seeking God. So place is important primarily because we need a place. It's a fundamental human need. Place informs so many of the core questions that we ask. We need place. Second reason that place is important, or the second principle of place, is that what is outside affects what's inside. We are shaped by place. We're like Plato. We are shaped by our container. The context in which the seed is planted is not the same as the seed, but it directly affects the seed. I've read that the minerals and the elements in certain soils directly affect the flavor of the fruit grown in those soils. I've even read that the flavor of, like the elements in certain soils, the minerals in certain soils, affect the flavor of the meat of the animals that ate the grass that grew in that specific soil. You can make pork, in other words, taste more salty by changing the soil on which the pigs live. That's phenomenal to me. That's really interesting. It's an example of how what is outside affects what's inside. One time I spent a whole summer in the uptown neighborhood of Chicago when I was in college. And I would spend all day with these 20 or 30 kids that lived in a homeless shelter. And the homeless shelter was in a concrete warehouse with no windows. And then at night I would sleep in a hotel room with 10 other guys in a single hotel room. So my context For an entire summer, my space in which life happened was hot and crowded and dirty and stinky, like all the time. (laughs) And it affected me. 
it affected me. And every once in a while, I'd get to walk about 30 minutes. I'd cross LSD, which is Lakeshore Drive, and I'd get to Lake Michigan, and I'd put my feet in the water, and it looks like an ocean. And my body would just breathe, you know. My soul would just inhale. I don't remember a time in my life when I was more affected by my environment and when my, when my environment had a bigger impact on my soul, like the health of my soul. Um, but I also experienced something very similar when I walk into like a chaotic closet. Ooh, it impacts me. Or when I step into a huge, amazing sanctuary, it, it impacts me. Or when I get to walk on the beach, what's outside impacts what's inside. And so when what is outside is constantly changing, when there's no stability in, this, in the place, when there's no physical demonstration of permanence, it affects what's inside. And you see, especially kids who are growing up in situations where there's no permanence, they're chaotic inside. When the outside is constantly changing, it affects the inside. Conversely, when on the inside, you don't have any kind of sense of home, a sense of belonging, it's almost always a reflection of something that's happening on the outside, right? The inside affects or I'm sorry, the outside affects the inside. We are shaped by place. And then finally, a third principle of place. Deep roots make much fruit. Deep roots make much fruit. This is true in terms of plant production, like apples and almonds, and it is also true in terms of spiritual production, in terms of peace and purpose. Deep roots make much fruit. The seed that lands on the rocky soil, for instance, in the parable, sprouts quickly, right? But it doesn't last, and it never produces fruit. And the reason that Jesus says is because it has no roots. The roots are connected to the fruit. The lack of roots equals a lack of fruit, which is actually saying two things, if you'll stick with me. Two things. First, in order to develop deep roots, we need to stay in one place for a while, don't we? Very practically, in order to develop roots, a plant needs to stay in one place for a while. Roots don't get established overnight. There is great wisdom in remaining in one place. And the second thing that it reveals, and this is really to the ultimate point, the second thing that it reveals is ultimately, it's not about place, is it? It's not about place. Ultimately, it's about the fruit that comes from the place. That's what it's ultimately about. It's about the fruit that is nurtured and matured in that place. The place is a container. The place is the flimsy little black uh, plastic container that you buy the flour in and then you throw away because you don't need that anymore. But for a while, place is incredibly important. But ultimately, it's not about the place. It's about the fruit that comes from the place. It's about the fruit that comes from the place. So once the initial shock of hearing that my buddy Greg is moving wore off, and I'd ask some of the initial questions that you ask when you hear news like that, like, oh my gosh, what did the kids say? Or how does Courtney feel about this? Or what about the church? Or what are you going to do with your house? We're like miles down the road, and I finally go, so where are you moving? And he said, we're moving to Memphis. I said, you're moving to Memphis? What? Why are you moving to Memphis? And the answers to the question about why he's moving to Memphis became clear to me 
in those couple of days that we spent together in Charlottesville. Let me point out a couple of the reasons. First, in Charlottesville, they knew all their neighbors. They knew who was in the hospital. They knew whose birthday it was. It was clear that they'd had a lot of meals with a lot of people for a lot of years. They knew their neighbors. They knew the people. Secondly, they understood the challenges and the hopes of this area. Just months before I went to Charlottesville, Charlottesville was in the news. Maybe you remember it. It was the site of a racially um, incited uh, scene of violence, protests happening around this statue and other places. It culminates with some, some guy driving a car down a back alley and killing a young woman and permanently wounding several other people. Hanging out with Greg in that place, uh, I heard some of the perspective, some of the local perspective that he had on that situation, which in some ways was very different than what the media reported. In some ways, it wasn't as bad as what the media reported, but in most ways, it was far worse than what the media reported because it was relational. It was local. He knew the people. He knew the problems on more of an intimate level. They understood the history of the place. They understood the generational sins that had affected Virginia and specifically Charlottesville. They understood the institutional influences in that area. So many backgrounds to so many stories, so many little hidden messages on the sidewalk at the University of Virginia, right? Not only did they know the people, they knew the problems. They knew the brokenness. And third, they didn't just know these challenges and these possibilities kind of intellectually. They lived them. They'd experienced them personally. The pains of the place had affected them personally. They knew how the people felt because they felt that way too because they'd been there for so long. So it was this long-term and localized, personalized experience that enabled them and shaped them to offer restoration to what was broken, to engage in, and this is the, like basically the third reason here, they, they had learned to do restoration that was effective. The church that Greg pastored was highly effective in addressing the specific needs of that area because the, they understood the issues with clarity. They knew how to address them. They were effective. They knew the problems and the pain. They knew the people and they knew the possibilities. One morning, we're, we're walking by his office in downtown. This FedEx truck slows down and the guy leans out and says, hey, what's up, Greg? And Greg says, hey, what's up? And says his name and then tells me the guy's story as he drives along. It's just like he's part of the fabric of the downtown. Then we return to his neighborhood later in the evening. Where's Hal? That's his little eight-year-old. Where's Hal? Oh, he's just running around. It was like there was this little gang of eight-year-olds that just ran the neighborhood all day, played in the creek, grabbed food from different people's houses. It was like the whole neighborhood had conspired to allow these kids to remain kids and then get home safely in time for dinner. It was a beautiful scene. And several times when we were there, I'm just like, Greg, do you know how amazing this is? And he'd say, yeah, I, I can't believe we're leaving sometimes. So much of it was so good. If you would have seen this place, you probably would think as I did, man, you've arrived. I mean, this is what people are trying to find, and you found it. This is what people are trying to build, and you've built it. This is so good. And the reason I'm telling you this story with such detail, friends, is because I, I want his story to illustrate the main point of this sermon. And truthfully, this story illustrates the whole point of this sermon series, and it's this, the value of stability applied to a specific place is why Greg and his family lived in Charlottesville for so long. 
because they valued stability, because they knew that stability was the only way to get to real growth and real change. The, in other words, the only way they were going to ever see fruit in that place was to stay in that place for a long time. And, and the value of stability to a specific place was also the reason why Greg and his family were moving. The same reason they stayed, the reason they stayed was the same reason they, cho- they decided to move. It was the same reason that ultimately moved them. He told me while we're drinking tea late at night out on his front porch, we still value the same thing. But that same value, which caused us to just send roots down here for so long, has now been the very thing that has caused us to feel compelled to move somewhere else. He said, I believe that God is calling us to the inner city to take this value, to take these commitments, to these experiences, these disciplines that we've put in and we've embodied them, now they're practices. We want to take all that we've learned here and we want to live it into there. We want to live into it there. Their moving, therefore, was not really a leaving. It certainly wasn't an abandoning, and it certainly wasn't an avoiding, which is often what characterizes a lot of the movement in our culture. Their moving was fueled by mission. In staying, they had gained the insights, they developed the values, they lived into the disciplines that would enable their moving to bring healing to another place. They were not moving to get. They were moving to give. It was just very clear. This was not an exercise in consumerism. This was restoration in action. This is like, let's put this value into practice at the most intimate, core, fundamental, local level we can. Let's go to a place that is racked by instability and be a source of stability in that place. We know how to do that because we've been doing it in this other place for 18 years. It was their stability in one place that God used to uniquely prepare them to be a stabilizing presence in another place. All right. Finally, one more monk story, because I know you love them. Uh, In Kentucky, in the middle of the 20th century, there was a Trappist monk named Thomas Merton, and he's kind of monk famous because he's written a bunch of books. And one of the books that he read or wrote is called The Sign of Jonah, and in that book, um, Merton wrestles with his desire to leave the monastery in Kentucky. He wants to leave because he's convinced it's... It's like this daily struggle to be there. Another monastery would be better than this one. Another community would be so much better than this one. A different kind of work would be so much, so much of a better fit than this one. Another group of people, another place, anything but this, I just got to get out of here. I got to go somewhere else would be better than this place. But finally, Merton comes to this powerful realization. And echoing the famous words of Moses the Black from the 4th century about staying in your cell and your cell teaching you everything, Thomas Merton writes this, God's will is my cell. God's will is my cell. See, he's elevated the whole conversation. He knows that place matters. 
Staying in a place has taught him that truth. What he realizes then is that the ultimate place he needs to be is in the will of God. That all this life and challenge and difficulty that he is submitted to on a regional geographical address, like in my room kind of level, has shaped him into a way that he knows that there is, he, the physical has taught him what is true about the spiritual. And he realizes that the ultimate place he needs to be is in God's will. God's will is the place where he needs to stay. This commitment, friends, to stability, it will cause some of us to stay in the same town. It will cause others of us to move to different towns. The town part doesn't even ultimately matter. It's what is this experience teaching us about the ultimate questions, which is, in a sense, what is your will, God? And will I remain just completely committed to being, being in the place of submission to you? It's not ultimately about Kentucky or Charlottesville or Memphis or Lincoln or Spain or Roseville or Cambodia. That's not the ultimate point. God's will is my cell, to use that old language, here in the place of surrender to the will of God. That's the place that I need to remain committed to staying. Here, in the place of surrender, that's the stability to place that needs to guide my life. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. I pray for grace for us to learn and to be shaped by our places, the places where life is happening, to be so completely there that we're able to experience you and all of your love and truth in that place. Not so that we will stay in that place forever because it ultimately isn't about the place. But may our places be like workshops for spiritual formation on our souls. And may we grow to the place of recognizing that where we need to remain ultimately is in a place of surrender to you wherever you want us to go and whatever you want us to do. May the practical, the mundane, the parts of our life that don't even seem to matter, may they shape us into the kinds of people who can bring restoration wherever we go in the name of Christ. Amen.